I'm sure that most of you are aware of the current passionate disagreement that exists in the church regarding both the reality and the duration of hell. There are basically three positions, again, within the church that you can hold. First is to deny the existence of hell or to deny that people actually go there for eternity. Some of you are familiar with Rob Bell's book, Love Wins, in which he teaches a universalism that is at the end, everyone eventually goes to heaven because God's love wins. Before him was a guy named Clark Pinnock who denied the idea of judgment um, as being unworthy of a loving God. For example, he wrote, I consider, don't miss those words, I consider the concept of hell as endless torment in body and mind, an outrageous doctrine, a theological and moral enormity, a bad doctrine of the tradition which needs to be changed. Everlasting torment is intolerable from a moral point of view because it makes God into a bloodthirsty monster who maintains an everlasting Auschwitz for victims whom he does not even allow to die. No doubt emotionally charged words, understandably. But notice, I consider devoid of biblical support. His second position is called annihilationism. That is, unbelievers are indeed sent to hell in which they are destroyed or consumed and therefore cease to exist. They are annihilated. Probably the best known to consider, just consider the topic, was John Stott who wrote, I find, notice those words, I find the concept of eternal punishment in hell intolerable and do not understand how people can live with it without either cauterizing their feelings or cracking under the strain. But recognizing the folly of allowing emotions to determine beliefs, he added, as a committed evangelical, my question must be and is not what does my heart tell me, but what does God's Word say? Stott actually ended up saying that he was open to the discussion of annihilation, but never fully adopted the position. Third option is to accept the seemingly clear teaching of Scripture, that is, there is a hell created for the devil and his demons into which rebellious unbelievers are cast for eternal conscious torment. So those passages, as Matthew 25, are often quoted where Jesus Himself says, but when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all 
the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. There will go, uh, th- uh, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Eternal punishment. Revelation 20 talks about the great white throne judgment, how the devil is cast into the lake of fire where he will be tormented day and night forever. The same lake of fire in which these people are cast. Now, I find no personal joy or satisfaction in reading those words, but they are the words of Jesus, and I accept them nonetheless. There are other passages which seem to clearly point to eternal conscious torment. Regardless of your personal position, dying apart from Christ is a horrible fearful state. So says the text before us today in our continuing study of the book of Hebrews. Now, if you're a guest, a visitor here this morning, I I know that there are pastors who seem to relish preaching hell and damnation, fire and, and brimstone. It is suggested they seek to scare the literal hell out of people. I am not one of those pastors, but we go verse by verse through books which do speak of eternal condemnation for those who reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. And while I do not relish the topic, I love God's Word and readily accept the responsibility to teach it as it comes. I did not pick pick this text. It was next in our study. So read it with me, found in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 to 31. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Three weeks ago today, I preach the text that was before this one, Hebrews 10, 19 to 25, and 
and then went on vacation for two weeks, and I was quite confident that either Michael Talley or Mark Valentine would take this next text. <laughs> you can imagine my disappointment to come and find that they had not. I say that only to say... Um, in all seriousness, how thankful I am for Michael and Mark. I did listen to both of their sermons as soon as they were posted, and how deeply thankful, how deeply moved I I was by their careful um, exposition of biblical truth. So thankful. This is now the fourth of five severe warnings found in the book of Hebrews. The author is writing to Jewish believers who are suffering as a result of their new faith in Jesus. They were considering, remember, returning to Judaism, a much more acceptable and respectable religion. The author writes to both encourage and warn them. His encouragement comes in this, Jesus is better. He's better than Judaism. He's better because he's better than the angels who were thought to mediate the old covenant. He's better than Moses and Joshua, Aaron and the Levitical system, the law and the old covenant. In fact, he's better because he's the ultimate fulfillment of the old covenant. It all pointed to him and the perfect sacrifice he would bring in the shedding of his own blood. It's been glorious. Conversely, the warnings have been like this. In, in the first one found in chapter 2, he challenged his readers to pay attention to what they had heard so that they would not drift. You see, if, if those under the old covenant in the Old Testament drifted and, and received a just penalty for their disobedience, how will we, under the new covenant, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? We won't. Second warning found in chapters 3 and 4. He doesn't want found in any one of us, uh, of them, an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Instead, he, he said, encourage one another day after day so that none will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Don't be hardened. Continue. For we have become partakers of Christ if we continue um, If we hold fast to the end, and the opposite is, if we don't hold fast to the end, then we have not become partakers of Christ. And and so, don't harden your hearts. Third one was found in chapters 5 and 6 where he scolds them for having remained spiritually immature. By this time, they ought to be feasting on meat, but instead continued in the milk of the Word. By this time, they ought to be teachers, but instead they need someone to teach them the basic principles of, of the Christian faith. And to, re, and to remain in Christ, spiritual immaturity, is to, to, to not grow, is to put yourself at risk. Those of you who say, all I really need is Jesus, don't need all this doctor stuff, you are dreadfully mistaken. Warning culminates in chapter 6 with what, consider, with, some, what some consider to be the most severe warning in the book, perhaps in the New Testament. There he says, don't walk away, don't quit. If you do, there will be, there will be no returning to repentance. You can't come back. This is serious. That brings us to this fourth warning. Perhaps as severe, some suggest it's even worse. Because not only does it talk about the horrible sin of apostasy, uh, of walking away, but it talks about the terrible consequences of doing so. This is serious. 
Let's not forget the context of chapter 10. The author has just finished his multi-chapter doctrinal portion of the book in which he has clearly demonstrated the superiority of Jesus to the Levitical system. See, the old covenant was, it was founded on the law of Moses. The new covenant is founded on the gospel of Jesus. The old had a high priest after the order of Aaron. The new after the order of Melchizedek. The old sacrificed animals, which could never take away sin or perfect the consciences of, the, uh, of his followers. The new sacrificed the very Son of God, which takes away sin forever and, 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 and purifies the consciences of his, of his followers. The old was found in The old was found in the privacy behind the veil of the earthly tabernacle on the Day of Atonement, which was simply a constant reminder of our separation from from God and, and our sinfulness, the sinfulness of the people. The new was found publicly. On the cross of Christ, we, which then tore the, the veil and made access to God in his heavenly tabernacle, a, a reality by removing forever the sins of his people. It has been, it has been wonderful. So, so now having finished the doctrinal section, it, it leads to what I'm calling the so what section. <laughs> in other words, from what are we going to do about it? He moves from doctrine to duty, from creed to conduct. We have several chapters left in the book of Hebrews in its application. He started in chapter 10, verses 19 to 25, remember, three weeks ago, by saying three things. Let us draw near to God. Let us hold fast our confession of faith, and let us encourage one another in the process. You see, we need one another. The, the church is important. Four, verse 26. If we don't, if we don't hold, draw near, hold fast, if we don't encourage one another, if we walk away, if we apostatize, there remains only certain judgment. Now, do not think that the author or I am only focusing on the negative. F- far from it. I, I went through all of that to, to remind us where we've been, that he's been encouraging us all along the way. It's been the bulk of his letter, and we'll continue again through chapter 13. But, but yes, he also severely warns us, this is serious. He would be remiss, I would be remiss not to do so. John Piper writes in his sermon that he preached in April of 1997 on this passage. We we believe that the only good motivation for sharing the gospel, he means, comes from hearing about grace, not judgment. Let's share grace. And little by little, we let that conviction, as unbiblical as it is, creep into our view of God himself until we have no categories anymore to understand, let alone love, a God whose wrath is a fury of fire against sinners. But the writer of this book of Hebrews will not be silent about the wrath of God. And so he warns us. This warning can be outlined as follows. Willful sin, that is apostasy, we will see, brings certain terrifying judgment. Willful sin is worse under the new covenant than it was under the old. Willful sin, he defines it for us. And then just in case you didn't get point one, willful sin's judgment is promised. It's a delightful sermon.
starting with willful sin results in certain terrifying judgment. Notice verse 26 begins with the word for. That's a conjunction to what he has said before. What did he say before? Well, draw near, hold fast, encourage one another, and don't forsake meeting together in order to encourage one another. Don't do that. The church is important. For if you don't draw near, if you don't hold fast, if you don't encourage one another by forsaking meeting together, you run the significant risk of falling away. The church matters. Here he says it this way. If you go on Sinning willfully is the present participle. It means you keep on sinning. It's why it's translated that way. You go on sinning willfully, volitionally. You know, and it's a willful choice. Having received the knowledge of the truth, what truth? Well, it's the truth that he just shared that can be summed up in the gospel. The good news of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection, bringing the new covenant. If you sin willfully, meaning if you walk away, from that to, in their case, return to Judaism, there no longer remains any sacrifice for sin there. This should be clear to us by now. You can't return to Judaism. It's Old, Testament, Old Covenant sacrifices are obsolete. They were simply types pointing to the new covenant sacrifice of Jesus. You can't go, you can't go back there. there. There's no sacrifice for sin there anymore. And I would add... If the sacrifice of Jesus is God's way to find forgiveness and reconciliation, there is no other system of religion that will work either. No, that sounds arrogant. It's true. I know it's popular. So you say, I think I'll, I think I'll try some Eastern mystical religion. Seems kind of cool. You can't do that. They don't have Jesus. If you leave the Christian faith, you are leaving the one and only way of reconciliation to God. There is no other way. So, if you leave, there remains no sacrifice for sins and, there, and, and no forgiveness. Therefore, there does, does remain, there does remain a terrifying expectation of judgment. The, the, the word terrifying comes first in the phrase for emphasis. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. Terrifying to think about that. The word means fearful, frightful, frightening. A frightening expectation or assurance of judgment. A judgment, notice, made up of a fury of fire. That's an interesting phrase to me. God is not just a little put out with our sin. Not just a little irritated a little upset. He is zealously, passionately angry at sin that will eat up or consume the adversaries. Quote of Isaiah 26. At first glance, that will look like the judgment destroys the unforgiven, rebellious apostate, but as we've already seen, that judgment is actually an eternal consuming. Judgment is eternal. Jesus even refers to the fires of hell as a place where the worm does not die. Do we believe that? 
The author is strongly warning those who were considering walking away, committing apostasy. If you do, all that remains is terrifying judgment. Is he trying to scare them? Of course he is. Of course he is. But he is scaring them with certain inescapable truth. You see, these people had received the gospel and they were walking away from Christ and to quote Piper, in the broad daylight of truth. They knew and they walked away. And that certain truth brings us to the second point. Judgment under the new covenant is worse than judgment under the old. As as he's done before, he argues from the lesser to the greater, as he did in the very first warning found back in chapter 2. We read these words, for this reason, we must pay closer attention than than the old covenant people. We must pay closer attention to what we've heard so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels, in other words, the old covenant mediated by angels, proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape? If we neglect so great, lesser to greater, so great is salvation. Notice the Trinitarian nature of our salvation. Yeah, after it was at the first spoken through the Lord, that's Jesus. It was confirmed to us by those who heard the disciples. God the Father also testifying with them both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit. You got the Lord Jesus, the God the Father, and the Holy Spirit. What more do you need? According to his will, so also in chapter 10, anyone who has set aside, drifted away, walked away from the law of Moses, died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. You do the research. This is talking about the sin of idolatry, turning away from the living God, and that was punishable by death. And since it required the death penalty, it required some witnesses. Verse 29, again, lesser to greater. How much severer punishment? Listen to me. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve if he walks away than the new covenant? How was the punishment more severe? Well, to walk away from the old covenant resulted in physical death. Walking away from the new covenant results in eternal spiritual death. Yes, of course, the idolatry of the old covenant resulted in spiritual death as well. But his point is those who walk away from the glorious news of the gospel is deserving an even more severe Punishment. Please understand what I am saying. It is a big deal to hear and to understand the gospel and say, thanks, but no thanks. Don't do that. As Christians, we like to have our list of really bad sins, don't we? And somehow right at the top, somehow we put... Abortion and homosexuality right at the top. But here, the author seems to have at the top of his list this, knowing the gospel, understanding the gospel, perhaps even superficially accepting the gospel for a time, but then walking away, committing apostasy. For you, it is a willful sin decision which deserves severe punishment. If you were here this morning and you were not a follower of Jesus, and you have no intention of following Jesus, I want you to hear me. I wish you had never come.
We will be judged according to the light that we have. You will be judged according to the light that you have received. I am pleading with you. Why? Why is the sin of apostasy so bad? He defines it in the second part of verse 29. By walking away, the willful sinner does the following three things. First, he has trampled underfoot the Son of God. Can you imagine? You do that every time you say thanks, but no thanks. To trample underfoot is to treat with contempt. It is to spit on Jesus. This person having been exposed to Jesus, that is who he is, the very son of God, and turning away from him is treating the person of Christ with contempt. Second, he regards as unclean, common, ordinary, nothing special, ineffective, the blood of the covenant. We've seen the Old covenant was inaugurated with the blood of animals because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. But the blood, that blood was only a, a type and could never take away sin. It pointed to the blood of Christ, the very precious blood of Christ, which could alone atone for sin. And to walk away from Jesus is to treat His blood, which inaugurated the new covenant. It is to treat it with disdain. It is unclean. It is ineffective. It's ordinary, nothing special. That makes the Father angry. The very blood had sanctified the one walking away. We've seen in Hebrews, the author does not use the word sanctified like Paul does, this idea of ongoing sanctification, becoming more and more like Christ. Rather, rather, author uses it to speak of salvation. So to commit apostasy is to treat the very blood, listen to me, to treat the very blood that saved you as unclean, ineffective, it is to treat it with contempt. Obviously, this presents a significant challenge. Is the author here suggesting this was a saved person who by then, he, he, was, he was saved, he had accepted Christ, but then at some point willfully rejected Christ. Does he then lose his or her salvation? We've talked about this already, so I won't belabor the point. I don't personally think, my personal understanding, I don't think that a truly saved person can lose his or her salvation. I believe that that actually goes against the teaching of this book. That leaves two options that I have shared before. First, it is possible this person made a, prof made a profession of sanctifying faith, but was not truly saved and proved it by walking away. It's a fairly typical understanding for those who believe that you cannot lose your salvation as I do. It's fairly common. If you believe that, that's fine. A second possibility, actually third, first is the true believer falling away. This is not a true believer who falls away. A third possibility suggested by some, which I have shared that I kind of like, is that these warnings are to true believers, to you, and they are always effective. Yes, there were some who were thinking about walking away, but the author warns them, and he warns us, true believers, don't do that. The consequences are too severe, and so they and we don't do that. We listen. Here's the point. Are you listening? Saved person, do you hear? Are you treating the blood of the covenant with disdain, with contempt? Do you love Jesus' blood as your most valuable treasure? Third thing to happen if you commit apostasy, walk away from Christ, is to insult 
could be translated, translated outrage. Outrage. Spirit of grace. You want to outrage the spirit? It's the only place in the New Testament where spirit is referred to as the spirit of grace. Likely refers to the fact that the spirit is the one who regenerates and makes grace active in the life of the once dead believer. He makes him alive to us so as to respond to the gospel. To walk away from that is to insult or outrage the spirit. can't help but think of the unforgivable sin. Matthew chapter 12. No, the unforgivable sin is not suicide or murder or abortion or any number of other things that you might have heard or even said. Let me define it for you. The unforgivable sin is attributing to Satan the work of the Spirit. Here, to walk away from the work of the Spirit of grace is to treat his work with contempt. That's why the author said in chapter 6, listen to me, that's why he said in chapter 6 that it is impossible to renew such a one to repentance. You have outraged the spirit. Meaning, if apostasy of true believers is possible, since they have treated the spirit with insulting, outrageous contempt, it is impossible for them to be saved again. Thinking about quitting, I'm begging you, don't do it. You can't. Be saved again. Leads to the last point to willfully sin, having received the knowledge of gospel truth, to walk away and commit apostasy results in the terrifying consequence of promised judgment. The author as he often does, quotes the Old Testament for support. Here, the final song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32. He's going to die in Deuteronomy 34. We know him who said, vengeance is mine. I will repay. In other words, he will dole out just reward, or in this case, just punishment. If you walk away, you will not be immune to his judgment. In fact, to trample the son underfoot, to treat um, uh, with contempt the blood of the covenant, to insult the spirit of grace is to receive an even severer punishment. Am I trying to scare you? Of course I am. Because the author is. Do not walk away. Do not commit apostasy. The consequences are eternally severe. He quotes Deuteronomy 32 a second time. The Lord will judge, we know that, his people. That is terrifying. We tend to think of God, uh, that, that God will only judge the unbeliever, but here he says he will even judge his professing people if they walk away. Verse 31, know this. It is a terrible, same word as in verse 27, a terrible, fearful, frightening thing to fall into the hands of the living God and the idea is for judgment. He is horribly provoked. Now this text was a verse in Deuteronomy. Jonathan Edwards, 
was referring to this verse when he titled his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Do not believe it when you hear that God is only a loving God, not an angry, wrathful God. It is a fearful, terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a God so provoked. Do not trifle with it. John Piper, again in that sermon, writes, The love of God provides escape from the wrath of God by sacrificing the Son of God to vindicate the glory of God in forgiving sinners. That's the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the essence of Christianity, makes no sense at all apart from the wrath of God. If there is no wrath and no judgment to escape, then Christ was sacrificed in vain. I close with two final thoughts. One of the major arguments against hell as eternal conscious torment is the idea of this eternal punishment for temporal sins. That is, paying for eternity for sins committed in time seems inequitable. But I would suggest that we do not comprehend the enormity of our sinful rebellion against a whole, an infinitely holy God. In addition to seeing its magnitude in our punishment, we should also see its magnitude in the price paid to rescue us. It wasn't that God could or would just forgive us based on some paltry payment. No, forgiveness required the death of His own Son. And so, in addition to seeing the magnitude of our rebellion and His righteous wrath in the death of Christ, we should also see the magnitude of His love toward us for you. Is God a God of wrath and judgment? Yes. But He is also a God of infinite, merciful love. The cross proves it. As I close, I want to go back to John Stott's quote from my introduction. He said, I find the concept of eternal punishment in hell intolerable. This is hard. And do not understand how people can live without, with it without either cauterizing their feelings or cracking under the strain of knowing it. If hell, if hell is real and eternal, reality and duration, how do you deal with this truth? Have you cauterized your feelings? Just don't think about it? Have you cracked under the strain of it? I would rather have you crack 
then die to your feelings. If we believe the Bible, unbelievers are headed for a Christless eternity in eternal conscious torment. How should that affect the way we live and the way that we desperately share the gospel? Unbelievers around you are in eternal trouble. And you have the answer. Verse 